Hey, Dental Associates and new practice owners, welcome to the Associates on Fire podcast powered by Practice CFO. This is the podcast that teaches you what you never learned in dental school, the financial side of dentistry. We cover topics from planning for ownership, buying a practice to student loans, taxes, and all things financial for the hungry to learn dental associate. So let's light it up. Welcome back, everyone, to the Associates on Fire podcast. My name is Drew Phillips, and I'll be the host of today's episode. For those who haven't had a chance to check out our Associates on Fire program yet, I'm a CPA and CFO advisor at Practice CFO and one of the instructors in our Associates on Fire program. Be sure to check us out at associatesonfire.com. Today, I'm excited to introduce the author of Dental Ease and CEO and founder of Denco Construction, Steve Anderson. Steve began his construction career in 1984 and founded Denco Construction in 1997. During his career, he has helped over a thousand dental professionals build or remodel the office of their dreams. Every dentist out there knows that specialization in their field is important, and Denco Construction has embraced that completely by building out a team of individuals dedicated to building and remodeling dental practices. And it's through all of these years of experience in the dental space that has provided Steve the knowledge and expertise necessary to write a book as comprehensive as Dental Ease. In the book, he goes through every step that a dentist will endure during their career from start to finish. He raises important questions that need to be answered and defined during each step along the way and provides helpful, real-life case studies for context. I was particularly impressed with how the book was able to demystify the world of architecture, design, and construction, especially within the context of dentistry. You know, one more thing before we get started here. I just have to toot your horn, Steve, because if you go to either dencodental.com or dreamdentalpractice.net and you take a look at Steve's portfolio of dental practices that he's either built or remodeled, it is absolutely mind-blowing how stunning these practices turned out. And if you're in the need for inspiration for your practice or your future practice, I'm confident that his portfolio will help. With all that being said, let's jump in and hear from Steve Anderson. Welcome, Steve. Well, thank you so much, Drew. I appreciate you having me today. Steve, let's start out by hearing a bit about your journey and how you found your way into the dental space. Well, (laughs) it's very similar to what some of the dentists experience. Basically, I was in the uh, regular construction, doing a little of everything, even com- industrial and hazardous and uh, strip center and lots of medical and dental. And And one day I was driving to work and I'm going, I got to change something. I'm tired of being everything to everyone. And I have, I'm very tired of having no value. And in the dental market, uh, the construction market is just basically give me a number and you're known by your number. and and I'm going, that doesn't work for me. I, I, I hate to say it, but I have a need and that needs to be valued. And so I'm going, okay, what can I do different? And so what I did was uh, uh, by the time I got to work and it was only a 15, 20 minute drive, I came up with Denco Dental Construction because I realized that dentists were the, the one major field that I saw that needed uh, the most help. And repeatedly I, I had visions of, doctors and questions and so what now what and and how do i proceed and and uh it kind of took off from there you mentioned that one of the driving forces for moving to the dental space was your desire to be valued and not just another number or bid and i feel really similar in that regard our dental clients are some of the best clients i've been associated with across any industry and the reason 
is they're smart and they know where they excel and where they need help. And they're appreciative of the value their strong partner brings to their organization. For me, as I'm sure it is for you, it's knowing that you're bringing tremendous value to your client that gets us motivated to get out of the bed every day and make a difference. Using that as a segue, one of the sections in Dentalese that stuck out in particular is your depiction and characterization of what a great professional should look like and the attributes that they should possess. You go on to explain the differences between a professional and an accountable professional, and I'd love for you to give our listeners a recap of those differences. Oh, that's it's so, so huge. Uh, the the And the results are totally opposite. So what happens is, Drew, if someone comes in and most dentists, most professionals just go at the process and they just start interviewing everyone. And, and sometimes they just pick the lowest one and off they go. And, and there's nothing associated with it other than, well, we got a price and it's cheap. And what they forgot to mention is this is their future they're after and they want the best. And a lot of times the best can be had for free, such as in real estate. That's one of the big things that blows my mind. They go on do all these dumb things uh, other than find the best. And what happens is by finding the best, I mean, people that are accountable, people that when you sit down, uh, they offer suggestions to you rather than uh, little telltale signs uh, different from a, a great professional that will really help your team and assist you moving forward versus a, uh, someone that just is more about your wallet. And, you know, so when you finish a conversation, you just pour your heart out and say, here's my dream. Here's where I, what I'm after. Here's what I want to do. And they come up with something totally off the subject that they've been dreaming and thinking about that they want answered and they haven't been paying attention to you. That's number one. And, and, then, and then other questions such as you're talking about things and they literally will come up with what's best for them. They'll come up with uh, higher price things and, and they don't give you options they just say, yeah, we can do that. Yes, yes, yes. And they become a yes person. What you want is someone that gives you options, someone that uh, is really, uh, you can show that they have an interest in not your wallet as much as it's more about making sure that what's best for you and your, your decisions as you move forward. And it's, it's really changing your thinking and changing your listening as you're talking to these people. Are they really listening to me? And do they really desire my best interest? And, you know, and then it gets into the uh, as you find those accountable people, they have no problem in, you know, using the smart process, you know, and putting it down in measurable and accountable terms and giving you timelines and timeframes and keeping you in check rather than you have to chase them. And what are we doing today? What's next? So what? You know, and and that's not a good accountable teammate for you. You, you want someone that's basically driving. And, and a lot of times. When I meet with a client, I ask them, "Do you, can I have your permission to help drive this or is time frame not a concern for you? And in most of the projects, timeline is very critical and timeline can escape the entire process that no one's driving it. Yeah, you know. <clears throat> I don't think in what I don't want to I just want to clarify Steve I don't think Steve is saying that professionals that you surround yourself with should blindly lead you or blindly follow you, Thank you. but what he's saying is that they should hear you yes and that they should give you context around every single decision that you are trying to make and help you bring that vision to life without going through the normal pitfalls of someone that would work with an otherwise 
<clears throat> someone that, that has, doesn't have as much experience in dental or construction or architecture and, and, and so on. Absolutely. A great example is, you know, I think back of a, a broker one time and, and uh, the client was sharing with me the instance of um, he showed the exact area that he was interested in. So they went and looked at an office over that area. And then the, all of a sudden they get in the car and he's driving literally almost an hour the opposite direction in another part of town. And he's going, what are we doing? And he's going, we're looking at another office. He says, I'm interested over here. And and it was you could tell it was just totally self-serving. Why did they look at the other place? Because he had it listed and he was the listing broker and he was trying to sell it. And so that's just such a great example. Or, you know, you sit down with an equipment person and and so they talk about the top of the line, everything. And you're one of those that's more of the middle line. You're 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 looking at, you know, it's your first office and you want to make good choices, but you want to find things that are within your budget. And then when if they are an expensive item and it's it's always best to choose the best, uh, maybe choose one or two rather than outfit an entire office, such as, you know, uh, a lot of times we'll recommend just two or three ops to start in a lot of offices rather than totally outfit five or six operatories. You know, it's things like that that really make a difference. When you're coming out of dental school and you're looking to be an aspiring practice owner, you typically start with a dream. And for most, it's a dream to have the best and brightest practice. And what I gathered from your book in particular is that you can have the dream that you want without breaking the bank. And keeping in mind that there are restrictions in this industry in terms of what the banks are willing to lend, which limits the amount of cash that you'll have to build out your dream practice, making it even more important to surround yourself with people that specialize in dental. Because if you want to get even close to building out the practice of your dreams while staying within the lending thresholds that are a part of this industry, you're going to need someone with the right processes and teams in place that has a track record of success. Steve, I want to hear about some of the projects that you've done in your life that you would like to share as being memorable or that could add value to a doctor looking to remodel or build out a practice right now. Great, great idea. You know, um, let's talk. I I have some case studies in the book and they're in the back and there's some that stand out and uh, some are great. Some are terrible and some are in between. But the purpose of them is to help you understand and conceptualize what can happen when you don't have a solid team. Well, um, one comes to mind is I sat down with two doctors and they showed me this floor plan and I'm going, this is terrible. I mean, for a dentist, there was uh, literally nine operatories and not one of them had the same shape. There was trapezoids, there was boxes, there were squares or rectangles. it, It was, and the point of entry was different on every one. And I'm going, Oh, and I, I stopped and I said, and, and then I noticed one other thing is their offices were twice the size of an operatory and they had two and they were opposite corners way up front in the office. And I'm going, and then I see this dotted line down the middle of the space and the sterile in between. And so the sterile was in the right position, but it had a line through it. And I'm going, could you help me with what am I missing here? And he said, well, we had someone draw this up for us and we thought it'd really help us. And I said, okay, but what's with the line and what's with the offices? And he goes, well, that's in case we split up. Um, that's so we can instantly just put a wall between and we can continue on with our practice. And I said, okay, ask number one. I said, stop. 
and I'll come back in a week or two. You tell me and you decide if you're going to continue as a partner or not, because you shouldn't even consider this. And then second is let me get someone involved that really understands the dynamics of uh, of a good flow and design. And uh, we'll talk about your operatories. And, and I did a little program meeting with them and they said, yes, we want to proceed. And we came back. And the floor plan was day and night. The one thing that didn't change the size of their offices, and we moved them to the back a little bit, but the they still had to have the big the big offices. Um, everyone has their different program, and and that's the other thing. Is uh, another one comes to mind is uh, thinking about a doctor that wanted to uh, his end goal. Uh, he loved to get into dentures. He loved to get into implants and all those type of things, and he said, I found this office. It's a great location. And it was right across from a, an older community. And I said, that's okay, but you're going to spend five times as much if we go over this other community and it's right on the corner and great visibility and you could spend $40,000 to get in. You know, it's not going to be ideal, but it's going to be a step. And so what I told him, Drew, is uh, think about it. He came back, said, let's do the $40,000. And in the process of that, he, uh, about a year went by and he says, look, they built a building behind me. And I said, let's check it out. And so we put him upstairs, uh, into the new place and we, uh, put in a, a really nice office. And by then, uh, he had, he still had $200,000 school debt. And, but he's really liking the process and he goes, wow. He says, Steve, I'm loving this. You know, I've been able to build up practice and you know what? Um, I'm going to take a month off and I'm going to go take my family and we're going to go check the country out. I run into RV and here we go. He says, when are we going to be open? And I gave him a date and he literally showed up a day and a half before opening. And while he was gone, we had moved his office. They tore down the old building for the parking lot. And he walked into his new space. And then two years later, he goes by and he says, you know, Steve, I've got my debt paid off. What do I do? And I said, well, you see that land? We looked out the back window and he says, why don't you just buy that? And uh, he said, well, you know, over here, there, I can do it. He says, well, right now you're not ready for it, but this is even a better location you're at right now and go buy it. So we connected a year later and, uh, and the land had gone up $100,000. He said, Steve, let's start building. And I says, no. I said, the market crashed a little bit. And there was a fabulous piece of property with a building already built out. And it had this freestanding building that could do everything he wanted. And I said, sell the land. And he did. And he bought this building down there. And he was able to do the building of his dreams. I was going to say, do you, so do you get involved? Like, do you work closely with, um, with brokers to, to help uh, search for properties like that? Or you just have such an intimate understanding of that particular area that you were able to, to guide them in that way? I know that was going on and um, it's not always the case, but it, it's really about, there's t- many times I wish I was a broker <laughs> going, but, but it really, and I say that jokingly because as a dentist, it's the same thing. Well, I can do, and if I'm a journal, oh, I can do endo and I can do braces and I can do, and sometimes you get, try, you have your fingers in too many things and your, your specialty is lost and your skill set gets lost. And so I, you know, tell the doctors, it's really important to understand who you are and what it's about. And for me, 
my scope of work was very broad and I kept honing it down to the point where I just doing dental and then I quit doing ground up and we just do tenant improvements and we do remodels and that's it, you know, and people say, well, do the building. It says, no, I don't do enough of them to be excellent at it. And, but what it does is when, you know, no different than a dentist is so when the dentist really hones in on who they are and what they're about, they start making decisions. Like I talked to a doctor last week and he says, you know what, I'm in this new marketplace. I'm not going to have a checkout. I do everything in the operatories and we swipe cards and we do everything in the operatory. And, and, but it helps people. I, I just visited with another one a week prior to that. And he said, you know, I, I'm not going to have a, a CBCT. It's a big range of things, but he says it doesn't fit my model and I don't need it. And I do this limited scope of work. I make a great living and I'm happy at it. And, and so it becomes, you know, the, as you fine tune, and that's one of the big things I, I share with people is it's so important to understand who you are, you know, it, and that's number one. If you don't do anything else, you don't get anything else out of this podcast, understand who you are, what's important to you and what do you want. And if you don't know where to start in his book, I mean, it's, I think it's almost a page and a half long of questions to ask yourself. So if you don't even know where to begin on how to define yourself, you can get some inspiration there. And I, you know, I think even a couple of those, I, I had to, I had to take a, a moment to think of for my, for myself as well. So when you, when you mentioned earlier about <clears throat> practice that you were the, one of the examples that you were given of the nine operatory space and all these different configured operatories that you basically have to do a cardio workout to, to get around the place. Um, it's super frustrating for me when I'm helping a new buyer go into a practice that was structured that way. They didn't get Steve Anderson's last minute guidance to make a pivot. Um, and you've got a, a doctor's office that is like the equivalent of, of two operatories. And it's a three operatory space or a four operatory space and they've got massive capacity issues. What does that process look like if you wanted to come in and and really revamp it? I mean, is, I guess it may de- be dependent on the space a bit, but um, how long of a process and what does it usually take to uh, to remove some of the inefficiencies that were passed down to the, the new buyer? That's a great question, Drew. The, the, the big thing is, is once you understand what's important and what your pain points are, and I'll do another little side story is I had a doctor that... Um, I knew very well, and he was very conservative, but he signed up for the scheduling institute, and all of a sudden he's experiencing this big growth of patients coming in, and and he's going, I need a bigger space. Well, I knew him very well, and, and I'm going, this doesn't fit you, um, it's what you're talking about, because he was in 1,800 square feet, and he says, Steve, let's do lunch, and then we'll go look at my 6,000 square foot office that I found. And I'm going- That's a massive change. Yeah. And, and also, like I'm thinking, I don't know. So- after 15 minutes of talking and asked some pointed questions, I said, cancel the meeting. And he's going, what? I said, cancel the meeting. And I says, you won't be in business next year and, and you won't like me. <laughs> I said, I'm happy to spend $700,000 of your money. But I said, you know, it, it's not for you, doc. And I said, let's go back to your office and, you know, we'll quick lunch a little early and I'll find your needs. His need was an operatory. His need was to have a consult area. He needed to be able to have a separate area for his uh, CBCT because he was into uh, technology. And 
we for less than fifty thousand uh, dollars, he was able to do that. So, which would you rather have to help build the practice and and really solidify who you are to make that jump? There's some some doctors can make the jump and then do some things interimly. You know, they wouldn't go right into six thousand square feet, but they might go into three thousand, and they could rent out the other half. And so, that's where every dentist is different. That's why I have, you know, like 20 uh, case studies in the back is every doctor's needs are unique. And people say, well, should I buy or should I rent? And should I lease? And should I uh, uh, buy an existing practice? And and it depends on the current market. And it depends on, you know, what you have in you know, available to you and around you. And there's all these extenuating circumstances, plus your vision of what's, what's important to you. It's like you said, Each market and every decision that needs to be made is unique, and it sounds like you're taking the steps to evaluate and identify all of the opportunities that exist and then helping them make rational decisions based on what's available at that time. I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. Uh If you went back in time and decided to be a dentist, but you were able to keep all the knowledge you've obtained over your career, how would you design your ideal dental office? What would it look like? Well, first I would... uh sit down and figure out what my vision is um, and then be able to create that program. A program is basically we have a, a sheet uh, several pages in the book that talk about, you know, how many operatories and, and uh, are they all alike or the hygiene and so on and so forth. And we talk about the waiting room and the size and, and uh, getting all those particulars, but as what would an existing, what would a practice look like for myself? Um, it would be an office that would be extremely efficient. Uh, it would have less operatories in less cabinetry in the operatories. Uh, it, it would use a bin system in the sterilization. I'd have a CBCT. I would uh, invest in a, a 3D imaging, a 3D printing, and uh, possibly uh, the milling machine. It depend on whether. I want to learn that or have someone that was really good at it, but I think that's worth the investment. Um, I would look at uh, taking, having, making sure the break room is set up in such a way that I can have team meetings, but also large enough that I could do study club and, and do other events and things and bring them in. Um, I'd have a personal office that uh, is designed in such a way that um, I would uh, take the existing with keeping in mind that I'd probably have probably eight operatories. And with that in mind, I'd be bringing on an associate at some point and make the office, my private office, big enough that uh, they could be in my office because that's one of the biggest mistakes I see is having two separate offices and it creates division. Um, I would have a small, and I repeat, small uh, restroom um, off of my private bathroom or private office. And then uh, the central uh, sterilization area, uh, I would invest in uh, good equipment. You know, I, I really would look at uh, the headwall system as a major investment. So I'd look at something like an ADEC or something like that to uh, really have it efficiently laid out. Uh, I'd invest in a really good dental chair, you know, one that's going to last and, um, and it's not those are areas that I see that get cheapened. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a spring chicken, but 
I, I've gone through the pain points of trying to save a buck and uh, almost get out of some of my little enjoyments, point in case early on. I remember wanting to uh, go and uh, uh, do inline skating and stuff, and I bought a cheap pair, and I just about quit it. And then all of a sudden, I got tried a new uh, real nice set that was expensive, but my gosh, it was day and night. And the same thing happens with a dental chair is, you know, you get one that really, you don't have to worry about the repairs on it. You don't have to worry about a technician and something coming in. It, it does make a difference. I would invest in good equipment in the equipment room, you know, a good compressor and vacuum that, uh, and it would be a dry vac. So it'd be um, uh, environmental friendly and not waste the water that the wet vac systems go through. Um, that's just a tot. Uh, and then, and then, the key of the office would be to build the office uh, that fit my personality. And what I mean by that is um, I would love to have some little flares. I'd love to have some crown mold. I'd love to have some woodwork. Uh, I'm a carpenter by trade when I started. And uh, some uh, shows that those things that are important to me and, but not over the top. Um, I, I could not, work in you know something that's overly done it has to just be tastefully done no the, I, I honestly i think if if anything that was probably one of the was great commentary um gonna give so i know at least a person out there some inspiration what about the flow of the office you know you see a lot of traditional looks but i, I was curious if there's like a flow that you find to be the most efficient and maybe cost effective too yes uh very much so and you know, the, the one thing that um, gets spent the least amount of time on is quite often is the operatory. And I ask dentists to spend time uh, doing their pros and cons. And so what's worked so nice, especially a new dentist, you know, um, you know, someone's just coming out of school or if they're residency or they have these opportunities to go and check out all these offices and phones are great. I love the little notes that you have now and you can put likes and dislikes. You can take pictures and drop them into that file. And, and what's really nice is when you get ready to build your office, you have that just a huge catalog library of all the pros and the cons, but, it, and you flip through it. So as you're meeting with your team member, you meet with your architect or your contractor and, and you can instantly know what you like. And sometimes it's more important what you don't like. And, you know, so, you know, as far as the, uh, that'll help drive the flow. And, you know, and it's a little bit different for everyone. You know, there's some telltale signs that I tell people don't do, but there's still people that'll break the mold and it's not good or bad, but it's them. And, you know, it's a point in case, you know, uh, typically you want a waiting room and it depends on the community that you're in. And people say, what? Well, you know, if you're in a Hispanic area, they love family. And so if you're in a, you have a waiting room, it might be, you know, if you have six chairs, you might have a waiting room for 20 people. And if you're in a, a high end, uh, area and, uh, it might be one, uh, waiting room chair for, uh, every dental chair. So there, the community makes a difference, but also in your decisions and then also the level of design. And, you know, also, do you want a, a place for the children? You know, so many people don't stop and think about that. And, and it can create and uh, reduce the amount of stress for the team if you had a spot like that. So 
Um, and then another area is restrooms. It's the, the thing that people stop and think about and don't take time to think about is how important first impressions are. So first impressions, you walk in the office and people go, wow, I feel comfortable here. They've invested some time, money here. It's not over the top, but boy, it's clean. It's presentable. And it really fits the personality of the team that's here. And then they go to the bathroom. And I always said this, and then we, my wife and I went on a trip one time and my wife came out the door and go, wow, <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. And, but that's what I've always said is, you know, you, people really do make judgments that when they first walk in the door, but also they check out your bathroom and is it clean? And they take the time to just put, keep things orderly and is it a nice looking bathroom? And then not having that inside the uh, inside the waiting room. Uh, the old standard was they just put it over in the corner of the waiting room. And how embarrassing is it? Someone needs to go, your patient needs to go to the bathroom and they come out and everybody's looking at them. Doesn't that make you feel good? You know, and and so positioning of things, you know, you have it behind that wall that it's closer to the checkout, but it can still be monitored. You know, so. Uh, the idea is also you don't, uh, one of the big mistakes I see with a lot of architecture is they'll have the checkout and operatories right across from it to save space and stuff. A good architect will be able to take and shove, uh, shove it off to the side and allow, uh, you know, 10, maybe even 15, 20 feet before they get to the first operatory. So it helps with noise, it helps with confidentiality, it helps with just lots of different things. And you know, there's lots of simple design features that can be done to help reduce those stresses. And then, uh, and then having time and place for um, operatories. You know, we've had doctors that will uh, pack 10 operatories into 2,000 square feet. You know, that's one to 200 square feet. The average ratio is one to 350, closer to 400 square feet. So you get a 2,000, it's typically five. Well, it's like you said, build to your vision. Yes. Right? So, I mean, if you have a doctor that is, well, for better or for worse, right, profit-centric, and that's all that person cares about, 10 operatories in 2,000 square feet, I mean, I don't know. What would you say if that was their motive? Um, that was their motive, and two years later, they sold it and moved on. Mm, got it. You know, so it, it, your vision, your goals, you know, and it's different for everyone. I, I don't agree uh, – What's a challenge is for that person that's moving in there, all of a sudden you've got, a, it feels like a tight area because all of a sudden when you're, you're, taking, you're, you're taking your ratio and cutting it in half, something has to give. So what, what gave in that office? The sterile was tight. The break room was a third the normal size. The private office was half of normal, uh, you know, and the waiting room was okay. But, you know, especially now with COVID, I mean, it's, uh, people are standing outside and it's it's really awkward. Do you like what a patient can walk through after they've you know checked in, they're, they're, they're going back to their operatory, maybe with the assistant in hand? Um, do you like the for them to be able to see every operatory as they walk in? Or is, is there like a is there an aesthetic that you prefer uh, to recommend when, you know, from a patient experience perspective, when they actually pass the front desk and they go back into the, the treatment area? You know, the. It, it really comes down to individual dentists for that. So um, the less dental chairs they, a person can see as they walk into the office and into the production area, the better. 
And there's different ways you can do that, but it also depends on the space. And, and sometimes uh, uh, it's a conscious choice point in case, you know, we've, we've done where we'll have four ops opposite each other and then maybe a sterile in the middle or something. And sometimes we, we can move them apart and have a sterile and two hallways on the side and it affords the the comb beam, the sterile and and lab down the middle, and then and then they're not seeing the full office, and and then it becomes nicer. But when you have a tighter office in width, and that's where you have to deal with existing conditions and the dentist overall goal of the office, and and then trying to configure that, you can still rather than put them opposite each other. Sometimes it becomes a situation where you take the four and then sometimes you put two opposite the other direction so your hallway and they don't they don't see the other ops there's there's lots of creative things that can be done so yeah no that that was super helpful let's say i have i have a kind of an ideal doctor in mind dentist in mind and it's and i would say it probably makes up the majority of the people that we work with and it's not that their model is better than any other one it's just they they try to take a hybrid approach between you know really embracing quality and patient experience and putting that at the at the at the forefront but you know they still were you know still trying to 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 drive income as well and i find that you know when you take on that type of model you usually need about 5 to 6 operatories cuz you're trying to you know you still have a slightly beholden to insurance companies at least in the short term until you can build a patient base and then slowly gradually move away from that um but what was it? What would it take for the, a doctor with five or six operatories in mind? How much square feet to sort of bring to life what you were just mentioning, which is to have this, have the right feel, have the right patient flow, and uh, and and do that, do that the right way. Uh, you're looking at uh, between uh, two thousand and twenty four hundred square feet, and and. And it really depends on the location. Width will have a great impact on your final design. And then also the shape. Sometimes we end up with a trapezoid or we end up with something that uh, might have uh, an equipment room or a fire riser room that we can't do anything about that affects the corner. Or, you know, it, so uh, and sometimes that'll drive the square footage up a little bit. And some of the designs also will end up with more hallways uh, space. And when you have more hallways, you have more dead space, which adds to your square footage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, now hallways can also add elements of privacy too, though, right? So if you want to have the privacy element, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily trying to, uh, you know, put a, put a, a picture of a perfect office in anyone's head here. Like you mentioned plenty that it's, it's really dependent on the location and the, the budget and everything else that goes into that. Um, but if you wanted to add the hallways, are we going to get to that 2,400 into the range or maybe a little bit more? Yeah, 2,400 uh, would do it. You know, that's, that's typically would be a very comfortable office. Um, you know, we, we've uh, a great example that comes to mind is uh, I had the ideal uh, eight operatory office and, and uh, this doctor's plan, he'd, he'd, we'd done six offices for the gentleman and and uh, he was semi-retired and he, he had two offices that he never worked a day in. And uh, so his premise was he brought people in and they worked it and then they were building it and they bring associates in and, and whatnot. In the process of that, uh, we had an uh, eight ops and we were at uh, 3,000 square feet. 
And but what that looked like was uh, just perfect ops, a really comfortable uh, break room, very comfortable uh, consult. That's one area that I see a lot of times people get too tight on. And, and so there's nothing worse than you're trying to sell a 20, 30, 40, $50,000 case and they're squeezing by. And then what kind of impression is that and how comfortable they want? And, you know, a, a comfortable waiting room and, and everything properly sized, break room and so on. Um, we, you know, just a, a year or two later, we did an ADOP and uh, it was at 20, uh, just over 2,600 square feet. And I'm going, wait a minute, what happened here? And it all had to do with the hallways and the configuration of the width of the building. So it, it's, it's just really interesting. That is interesting. So you shaved 400 square feet off and didn't sacrifice really anything. Everything was perfectly sized. And in your world, square feet translates to dollars. It does. Right? In this market right now, what would you say the average price per square foot is to exactly what we've been talking about here? To do a tenant improvement or? To build out a six operatory space that's 2,400 square feet. Or you can even use your eight operatory 3,000 square feet example from earlier. What you're going to spend if if you're looking at a five six operatory, um, in and it's a really good question. So let me. It's going to give you two answers here. So the first answer in this area right now, and uh, it will be approximately uh, uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now, what's interesting is from the east side of town to the west side of town, northwest side of town that number can vary by 25 to $30 a square foot just in town here. And people say, well, how can that be? I literally had an office one time that was within 50 square feet of each other. And they, and the cost for the build out was over $70,000 different. And I'm going, how is this? And I started looking at it and one had air conditioners and the other didn't. One had a fire alarm system. And on the East side of town, I could do it for $1,500. It's $17,000 on the north side, west side of town. Is that just vendor specific or, or, or was that labor specific? It's municipality specific. Mm, interesting. And then, and then now let's take another dynamic that blows people's mind. If, if I'm at $125 a square foot here in Phoenix, I go to Texas, it's about $100, $105 a square foot. Now, if I go to Alabama, it's 160 now, if I go up to New York and uh, up to Pennsylvania area, uh, it's going to be 160 to 200. If I go to California, that 125 becomes 140, 150. If I go up to the Northwest, uh, we're up to 200. That's so counterintuitive to me that you can go to Alabama and spend close to $200 a square foot, but then in California where it's 150. What, what, which that is it that this that blows my mind. So, what, what do you th- what's the cause for that? It, it's uh supply, demand, and uh, some you know, there's there is a mentality of why do you charge it? Well, I can get it. You know, I, I've had that experience. I, I had one client that I swore I'd never do anything outside Arizona, and he at this was his third or fourth office with us. And he says, Please help me go clean that up. And I'm, I'm moving. I got to get that done. And I can't find anyone. And I, after the third time, I said, okay. I went and did it. And it was in New Mexico. And um, the codes, but it was out in the middle of nowhere, so to speak. And, you know, 
even the developer that I, I was dealing with in the complex, I said, so this storefront in the valley would cost me $3,000. And he says, yeah, $2,500, $3,000. He built the building. And uh, I said, we have to move, put another one in. He says, yeah, that'd be about right. So the cheapest bid I had was $6,500. The cheapest. And we went uh, over and talked to him. And I said, so why help explain this to me? And we made one little change and it dropped it to 5,800. And then I said, so help us out here. He says, why is that? And he said, well, we get it because we can. So middle of nowhere, New Mexico, the municipality was laying down the hammer. Well, and, but, I, but I, and I don't want to pick out just New Mexico. It's, it's, it can happen. I had that happen in, you know, the north and south part of the states with certain trends. And a lot of times that's where we would literally take our team from the valley and do it less expensively in remote parts of Arizona. Something comes to mind, and only you with your knowledge could probably pull this off, but creating a heat map across the entire United States showing the areas that have the most favorable cost dynamics. There are doctors that I work with that are coming out of school, and, and most of our associates on fire listeners are at the earlier stages of their career. And some of these doctors want to find an area where they can put in 10 to 15 years and generate enough wealth that they have the option to do something else if they so desired. And I think a map like that could really help them pinpoint an area to give them the best shot of accomplishing that goal. But Drew, that's the wrong mentality. And, 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 and no, except my apologies. Oh, no, no, no. I want your candid feedback at all times. This is candid feedback. So here's the thing is... It's no different than the buying cheap equipment and good equipment. And, you know, where you go should not be hinged on what is it going to cost me to get there. It should be hinged on what's interesting. If you do what you're doing and you have a passion for it and you go to the area that is really in need, there's, there's so many spots in rural Arizona and rural America that are being underserved that you can knock it dead and knock it out of the ballpark. So think about it. So if it costs me even 100000 more to go build it in rural Arizona, now let's put it in terms to that. What is that $100,000 in today's market? How much is that payment? Oh, it's not much. Uh, maybe a hundred, a couple of hundred bucks. Yeah. You know, so put it in terms. And that's what we, you know, so we're, you know, $400 maybe, you know, and so, that's what we really need. We get caught up in the dollar amount and the difference. And that's where a lot of times, you know, well, I can save $20,000 on my $300,000 package of equipment and they sacrifice something that really is going to hold them up better and serve them better. Oh, you're absolutely right. If you're making a decision with that as your only tool or guiding metric, you would likely be doing more harm than good. But as an overlay or as a supporting data point in someone's overall assessment of their future practice decision, I think it could shed some helpful insights, even more so if someone is deciding between a few locations that they like and that final decision of one area over the other, and they just need a little bit of help to get over the hump. Yeah, so, so what, you're, you're right. But what, but what really should be is you're talking to your professional, you're talking to your dental broker that really understands what the area is going, you know, the, and I'm not talking a broker that is far removed from the area, someone that's really in the area and really understands what's going on in the marketplace right now. And they understands what's coming available and where, where there is a lack of space. And, and a lot of these um, uh, lenders that specialize, 
uh, have recommendations for people that can tell you where those spots are. And so you go into those voids where there's a need. And, you know, I think of my sister up in Iowa that she was talking about uh, how well her dentist is doing because the only dentist in, you know, a town of, you know, 15,000. You know, and nobody, they can't get anyone, another dentist to move in and the town's expanding and growing and, and the, you know, they're just naming their price. And I'm not sure if this person wanted to live there or if they chose to live there because of this situation, but someone like that, they go somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Iowa, and with that many patients available to them, you know, the amount of time that they have to put in their career is drastically shortened. Assuming, of course, that they have a strong personal financial plan and they're not overspending. Well, and the other thing that's exciting about that is I know so many dentists that go, they want to be in that one area in town that is, you know, it's the choice place to be. Or they go into a center, well, the, the lease rate is uh, $10 less and I can be over behind that building over on the corner that nobody sees. And what they don't stop and think about, so they, that choice costs them what? It costs them two, three, four, five, six thousand dollars a month extra in advertising to find those patients because the patient can't find them. And if they just have a beautiful location. A couple of areas like that in San Diego are La Jolla and Encinitas. And there are a lot of phenomenal doctors in those areas. But as a new doctor coming in, the amount of money that you have to spend to take enough market share to survive, it's pretty high. And it's probably not the easiest or the greatest route to success. You know, a case study that I share that comes to mind along these lines is we have a client down in Tucson and very successful dentist. He was even uh, in one of the magazines, uh, uh, 40 under 40 of dentists and, and nationally. And, and in his office, um, what was interesting, he had some pain points and things that just weren't working and he just hated it. Uh, but his location into the strip center was such that you'd walk, you'd drive in and your eye, your focus would be on the, the grocery store, but you kind of ignore the uh, dental office. And what was interesting is uh, he was able to secure a, a space three doors down, three, and built the office of his dreams. And what was interesting is the only mistake we made is it was too small because he moved and he hasn't had time to advertise since. Got it. So the move positioned him in the shopping center where he was now in perfect eyesight of all the shoppers. That's free marketing. I love it. Literally would walk in and go, when did you come to town? And he'd been there for five years. This actually reminds me of something I saw in your book. It was a, it was a picture actually of a beige building. And it wasn't a bad looking building by any means. It kind of looked like a building that you would find in the middle of the desert of New Mexico or Arizona. But you took that beige building, you added color and some tasteful carpentry work to the outside, and it was amazing to see how a little bit of color and attention to detail can transform a building and really bring it to life. Oh, thank you. Yeah, no, and it does. And that's where, and there's dentists, you know, there's, there's people that are out there, there's associates, there's people that have opportunities to get in a space, and they might be moving horizontally, they might be taking over a practice and it's not maybe the dream of their office, you know, where they want to end up, but it's a good stepping stool. And a lot of times we call it put lipstick on the pig, you know, 
And sometimes it's worth it to spend that five, 10, 20, $50,000. We just did that recently to an office where we put 50 to $70,000 in the office and it was to spruce it up to a point where he could get production up, get him through another three years, and then he's going to go and move. But it really makes that kind of return. And that's what the percentages that that's another thing is money is cheap right now. And what a golden opportunity. And you think about the cost of advertising, it's a no brainer. And then on top of that, you take in a new dentist or a, a dentist that relocates and put into a new office and he has an established practice. National average is like 34% increase the first two years, just moving into the office of their dreams. Now, what, what kind of investments do you know? We, we, we have dentists out there that are spending all this time and money. Where should I put my money? Put it in your practice. You know, and, and, and put it in things that you're good at and what you know. And the reward is huge. And then it gives them ability. The other thing is we talk about putting lipstick on the pig. And, you know, that lipstick, you know, it might cost you um, – uh, maybe the ten, twenty, fifty thousand dollars, but the first two years is t- that national average is eight to twelve percent return. Well, what can you put your money in to get those kind of returns to stay in page? And and then you think about and that helps you boost to the next level and helps you get towards your dream. So you, you know it's okay to do steps. And one of the biggest things in this day and age is we want instant gratification. They just slow down a little bit. And the biggest single mistake that I see uh, new dentists coming out is they cripple themselves. And you know what that is? What The single biggest thing is they get that instant, that first check and go, wow, I've never seen this much money before. What do they do with it? Yep. I know exactly where you're going with this. And it was one of the points that aligned so well with like our model is to stay frugal right in the beginning. Absolutely, Drew. And so what they do is they go buy the big house and they go buy the big car, but it cripples them because now all of a sudden what's interesting is then the lenders go and so you don't have any money, you know, and you got this big debt. I'm not looking at you already got school debt. Now what's interesting is the other way around, you can have a half million dollars in school debt just so you keep paying that money and those regular payments and keep your FICA score up and do all those right things and work towards saving money. Don't don't pay it off. Just show regular payments and then work towards saving the extra. Uh, pay yourself and put money in the bank and try to save forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000. All of a sudden, the lenders are coming to you and say, how much you want? And what's interesting, if you do that first, there's some lenders that it doesn't even show up on your credit report. And then you could, you know, the next day or the next week, you can go buy the fancy car. I have, I have a client right now that uh, bought the big house and they knew they already owned the building and they were going to relocate their office into this new building. And they spent $200,000 on the down on the house that they didn't have to pay. But, you know, they just wanted to be more financially responsible. Well, that financial responsible has killed the deal. Want to look at someone now? It's isn't it interesting? Most people think, well, the banks would love the idea that I put more money down so my debt's less. No, the banks are more interested in consistency, 
being a good payment, you know, and you take care of things, you don't walk away from things. You're, you're a stand-up guy and, and you're always there for the long haul. You outline this in your book and it's something that's in almost every one of our Associates on Fire modules, which is what is the hierarchy of cash flow needs in the beginning of one's career? In the beginning, it's probably the most important time to follow and understand what that hierarchy is because it answers questions like, when do I buy my home? Do I buy it before or after I buy my practice? When do I refinance my student loans over a shorter duration? And operating out of that order can really jeopardize their ability to attain the next item on the rung. I just find that this point is extra important for new doctors to study and grasp as they start their career. Yeah, and and the visual I created in the book was, I don't know if you, at the very end, I talked about the fist of success. And so uh, I thought, what an analogy. And so literally I have doctors that don't realize it, that they really have their fists closed and that's the perception that they're giving all these professionals. They're trying to bring in the, the lender and all these people, but really they have this barrier up they're putting. And so what's interesting is if they deal with the FICA score and have a good score of, you know, 720, if they have intelligence spending, they satisfy their passion. They're really passionate about what they do and not something else. And it's, they're not in it for the money. And, and they take time for the relationships. You see what they, is happening with the hand is they, but the relationships, uh, not only for their family and the people that they've been working towards and wanting to build, but also more importantly is their, uh, not necessarily more importantly, but their, their patients and taking time for their patients and building that relationship because that's what's really going to feed their success. Absolutely. Savings. So all of a sudden you go from this to your hands open and that's where you're so powerfully successful and, and so powerfully um, uh, accepted and, and it helps you catapult into the success module. Very well said. Being open and willing to receive and accept change and then make the necessary course corrections, that's important. Steve, you have such a wealth of knowledge and we could talk for days and days without effort. But before we adjourn here, is there anything that you think is critical to share with our listeners? You know, um, the biggest single thing is follow your passion and money will come. You know, uh, take care of those around you and uh, believe and, and support others and make a difference. And everything, everything will come together. And dare, I challenge you, dare to be who you are not who your neighbor is, not who the guy across the street is, but dare to be unique in who you are. More great wisdom. We appreciate that, Steve. Those are important concepts to define and and revisit often. One last question for you, Steve, before we go. If we have doctors listening to this today that would like to work with you and Denco Construction to build out the practice of their dreams, what parts of the country do you all provide services and how can they get in touch with you? Uh, Thank you. Basically, we specialize and I help anyone in the state of Arizona, and that's our boundaries. And just primarily because there's such a variance, even, you know, in the Valley, we have 23 municipalities and they all have different tweaks. And it's even more so when you go into the extreme temperatures and and uh, different parts of the country and earthquake uh, requirements, all kinds of stuff. Um, so we serve best uh, the area we know, Arizona. Uh, from the standpoint of uh, the book, that's why I 
wrote the book is to literally help dentists throughout the world make better choices uh, because I can't help them all. If they, if they want uh, some help or consultation, reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk to you. But uh, I, I've helped quite a few dentists all around the country. Just uh, Sometimes it's just a phone call. Sometimes it's just a quick review of their floor plan and they're stumped. Uh, sometimes it's just uh, uh, looking at things. But the, the bottom line is surround yourself with accountable professionals. And that's what the book will help you do. Uh, because there's a lot of good professionals around the country and I'm, I'm, there's people better than myself. You know, it, it's really, uh, they're finding those people and asking the right questions. Well, first lucky for our listeners in Arizona, but second, not every area has a contractor that's focused only on dental with a tremendous track record, which is where Steve's book dental ease can help a contractor in your area to bridge that knowledge gap quickly. And for everyone out there that is interested in learning more about Steve's book, Dentalese, you can check it out at www.dreamdentalpractice.net. If you're in Arizona and you are in need of dental contracting services, or if you would like consulting help with the project that's out of state, or even if you're just curious to see Steve's impressive portfolio, you can navigate to his website at www.dencodental.com. That's D-E-N-C-O dental.com. Thank you for joining us today, Steve. It was a pleasure to have you on the show. I hope we can run this one back in the future. And that wraps up another episode of the Associates on Fire podcast. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, help out our algorithm by following, liking, and sharing across your favorite podcast platform. Until next time. 